And now we have the opportunity to come to the Word that God would teach us and equip us by it this morning. As you can probably imagine, we are continuing on in the letter to the Ephesians. And thus far in our time, Paul has given his greeting to the saints, followed by an incredible and inspired outburst of praise to God for his many blessings. Now we kind of circle back to what would be a common element in Paul's letter, his declaration of thanksgiving and his prayer for these saints. And Paul, in his time doing these, these thanksgivings and these prayers, he gives us a great pattern of concern, not just for the capital C church as a whole, the global church, but he also shows incredible care for individual churches, local bodies of believers. No matter where Paul was, he was preaching the gospel and he was establishing churches as he went. But he did much more than just preach in a place and move on. This wasn't just a local revival meeting that he kind of stoked the fire and left it to fend for itself. And I think sometimes that's a practice that many ministries today can learn from, that Paul, and even though it was oftentimes from a distance, engaged in intentional discipleship with these believers that he has left behind. He had various Christian brothers and sisters who would keep him up to date on the various churches that he has worked with, and then he would write letters counseling them and correcting them and encouraging them. And he prayed for them by name and for their specific needs. In almost every letter, Paul opens with a declaration of thanksgiving for these people and a snippet of how he has been praying for them. That's part of the reason why I love so much when we as a church get to be intimately involved with fellow believers. I think particularly of our connections with Pastor June and Roly in the Philippines. It was a unique blessing for Ed and myself when we visited the Philippines to get to experience firsthand what it looks like that we can be uprooted from our current context, thrown to the opposite side of the world into a culture not our own, to people who speak a different language, and yet find that even there we are still among family, and find that even there we still have families that would welcome us in. And not just stranger family, family that know of church elsewhere, but particularly we had church family that we knew have for years been praying for us for years have been connected with us. And they know for years we have been praying for them. And they know for years that we have been connected with them and we know each other and we have been praying for one another. We know that across the world from us that there are believers praying particularly for our church and us for theirs even as Paul, writing from Rome, 
has been praying in particular for the church in Ephesus and for their particular needs as he has received them. Why don't we read Paul's thanksgiving and prayer for these saints in Ephesus, and then we'll spend some time unpacking this passage. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 15 through to verse 19. In Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15 and running down to verse 19. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. This is God's word. There's an obvious kind of change of pace here from preceding verses, and it's Paul kind of returning to his normal pattern. And verses 3 to 14 that we've looked at over the last few weeks have been kind of a departure from his typical layout. But he gets back to his normal in verse 15, and we could probably pull in some of Paul's initial greeting here, kind of circling back. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then down to verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The traits Paul highlights as the inspiration for his prayers for these saints in Ephesus are their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for their fellow believers. We discussed much last week on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, including the gifts that he gives to his people, that as we grow in these gifts, we display that we have indeed been sealed with the mark of one who has an inheritance with God. And when we read of the gifts that the Spirit gives, it becomes pretty clear that all of them, and in particular faith and love, are absolute non-negotiables for the believer. And I acknowledge that some are particularly gifted in showing love in one way or another or displaying faith that is utterly unshakable, but all of us are to display faith and love and all of the fruits of the Spirit. And apparently these saints in Ephesus had marked themselves by growing particularly in these areas so much so that the reports of their faith and love had reached Paul in his Roman house arrest. And these good reports have spurred Paul on in his prayers for the saints in Ephesus. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I think for us, when we think of our own prayer times and the way we pray for one another, and I know it's the case for myself, it's easy for me to remember to pray for the people who are in need. 
it's easy for me to remember to pray for the wayward or the backslidden, the sick and the downtrodden. And obviously, these are good people to pray for. They, they need, as we all do, God's grace in their current situations. But sometimes we focus on these to the exclusion of thanking God for and praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are excelling in their walk with Christ, who have seen God at work. It's that age-old, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. We remember to pray for those who are the squeaky wheels, the ones who are struggling and hurting and sick and shut in and all of those things, and we should. But we should also be praying for the families that we see that are pursuing God wholeheartedly. When we see our brothers and sisters engaged in active ministry and discipleship throughout our church and throughout the greater church, we should be spurred to go, God is doing something through whomever. I need to remember to pray for that person that he would continue to do so. And thank God for the work that he's doing in them. We need to acknowledge the gifts the good things, the good reports we have in our fellow believers. And let us pray for one another, not just in trial and in difficulty, but also in the displays of God's faithfulness. And when we see markers of spiritual growth being granted by God through the Holy Spirit. Just so Paul is reminded to pray for these brothers and sisters in the faith. And the rest of our passage this morning bears the content of the prayers that he would make on their behalf. What is God praying for these faithful saints? First, he speaks of what he is praying for them specifically, and then he prays for the effect that such prayers, when answered, would achieve in their lives. So if you were to open up Paul's prayer journal, the heading for the saints in Ephesus here would be in verse 17, going into the beginning of verse 18, Paul prays for them this. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. It's interesting here, again, we have another one of these ultra-specific titles for God the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Over and over again throughout this letter, we'll get to it repeatedly that Paul wants no mistake about who it is that he is praying to. Found an interesting take on this particular title from Dr. Steve Baugh, a New Testament professor at Westminster Seminary in California. He is of particular note when looking at the book of Ephesians. And this title, he says, God is no longer known as the God of Israel or the God of Abraham, but as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as his covenant name, because God is no longer a national God, but the God of all nations, including the Israelites, who come to the Father through the incarnate Son. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, we see the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we see even when Jonah is telling the 
sailors on the boat during his misadventure of who it is that he is connected to, and it is the God of the Hebrew people, the God of Israel. But no longer is God, as Paul is talking to these Gentile audience, it's no longer just the God of Israel. These are Gentiles in a Greco-Roman colony. And this God and the Hebrew people in general hadn't gone unnoticed. And this God probably would have been known to many of these people. Oh yeah, that's Yahweh, the God of those people. The God of the Israelites. Remember that when Christ was crucified, what was it that was placed over his head on that sign? This is the king of the Jews. But in the incarnation, in the redemption that is found in Christ, which admittedly was first for the Jews, became much bigger than just that one nation. God was never just a national God. He was and always has been the God of all things, but he is recognized in human history as the God of Israel and its people. But now all of the sudden, God has revealed himself as being the God of all the earth, the God of all peoples, and welcoming the worship of all peoples, revealing himself to all peoples. Now there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That being from Galatians 3. God is now no longer specifically and particularly identified only with Israel, but in the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, whom the Father sent for the redemption of the saints from all nations. It is this God that Paul petitions to give these saints the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened. He is praying that these brothers and sisters would truly know God and that they might see and know his truth. And as I think about it, sometimes we can also forget who it is that writes some of these letters, recognizing that there's a specific person behind this inspired letter to the Ephesians. And if there is one person in the history of Scripture that I think would understand the importance of seeing God and being enlightened by God, I think it would have to be Paul. Paul's eyes had been utterly darkened, his heart incredibly hard towards God. And as Dick read, testifying before King Agrippa of his own manner of life in Acts chapter 26, Paul said, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which the twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King." Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem 
I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is the same Paul that is writing to the people of Ephesus. But then by the grace of God, not because of anything Paul then saw, what do, Paul says this to King Agrippa, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Why should it come as a surprise to us that this Saul become Paul would earnestly pray for the faithful saints that they might be granted the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened? Paul is literally just praying that these saints would be blessed as he was. Not necessarily in the same dramatic light from heaven, falling off his horse type fashion, but that God would grant the spirit of wisdom, that is, the Holy Spirit, that they might see and know him, literally that their eyes would be enlightened. I don't think it was lost on Paul that had the Lord not given him this spirit of wisdom, given light to his eyes, that even in his dramatic encounter on the road to Damascus, that he would still have denied Christ. Paul would have been familiar with the tale of Peter, one who traveled with Christ, who saw all of the things that Christ had done, who had confessed Christ as the Lord, the Messiah, and yet he denied him three times. Paul was very well aware that even seeing Christ in this light from heaven, that it was still a work of God that he was given the wisdom to respond as he did. And the result of being given this sight, of being granted the Lord's self-revelation, is found in verses 18 and 19. Paul prays for these things, that the saints in Ephesus may know what is the hope to which he has called them, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saint, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. To receive from God the wisdom and knowledge that comes from Him is not only necessary for our salvation. We don't just need God to open our eyes that we might be saved, although we do need that. God's people are to depend upon Him every moment. That's where Peter's coming from in 1 Peter 4 when he reminds the saints, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. If we desire to have vital and effective faith, 
if our faith is to be true faith at all, then we must live and act differently. It must affect the way that we live our lives. We must live according to a new nature that is granted to us in Christ. For we know that faith without works is dead. But to live in such a way is beyond our ability to drum up. We cannot become the people that God has created us to be on our own. We cannot push ourselves there. It requires that we live according to a strength that we do not possess. And I mean, lately we keep coming back to 2 Corinthians 12.9. Paul is pleading with God regarding an affliction that he has been fighting. And God's response is, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul's response is, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As far as Paul is concerned regarding these Ephesians, he knew that they believed. Otherwise, he would not have addressed them as he did to the saints in Ephesus. He thanked God that they had been given the gift of salvation, that they had been chosen by God. And yet Paul's prayer was that God would continue to reveal himself to them. That the very same God that they had seen and worshipped at the first would continue to be held before their eyes, revealing more and more of his glory and his person. Brothers and sisters, I know as well as anyone that sometimes it is easy for us to get distracted the truth that comes to us so clearly when we come to faith can sometimes begin to dim with time. We see with just such incredible clarity that moment where kind of switch flips in our brain and God reveals himself to us and we go, that's what this Bible thing is all about. That is what these people who have been speaking to us about the gospel is about and we come to faith in Christ, a work of the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, we have such crystal clarity, and we're just at this mountaintop with God, and then we go back into a world that hates God. We go back into dealing with a life of our own that has been lived for however long in opposition to God, and slowly, sometimes, the clarity that we had at that moment of salvation kind of starts to, to fade, and if we're not careful, we can allow it to fade, and that's what we talk about in the parable of the sower where we have these people who just spring up in the faith and then just wither away because they did not have roots. They did not grow deep in the Word. They just are scorched. But this dimming is not because the truth that God's revelation of Himself has changed. He is still as incredible and as glorious as he was at the moment of our salvation. Instead, we have allowed our hearts to be pulled away by a variety of other concerns and by the world around us. But Paul prays that God would reveal himself afresh to these believers. And it would be my prayer this morning, and I hope that you would join with me in saying this, that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, and having 
the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might? God reveals himself to us in a variety of ways. When we go outside after the service this afternoon, we can see God's general revelation, how he has revealed himself to us in the creation around us, the fingerprints of God on each facet of creation. And each one of us have specific areas in creation that we just are in awe. Whether it's seeing the incredible, delicate nature of the snowflakes as they come down, or seeing animals in creation, or seeing mountains, or rivers, or lakes, or whatever it might be, there is a sense in which we go outside and we see the work of God all around us, and we are inspired to bring glory to Him. And that, by the work of the Spirit, if we have faith in Christ, if we know the truth, we can know and go outside and worship God in reality for who He is because of the creation around us. And yet we should also earnestly desire to know Him and to seek Him in His Word, His direct written revelation to His people. May we be a people who are fascinated with hearing God's Word to His people. I've seen the look on my kids' faces when I'm telling them a story, and you can kind of see the difference where sometimes you see a story and they're just kind of off doing their own thing. And even if they're still sitting there, you can see their mind is a million miles somewhere else. But then every now and then you get to a part of a story and you can just see their eyes light up and they are just hooked. When I read from the kids' version of The Pilgrim's Progress of the battle between Christian and the dragon Apollyon. David is not off doing his own thing in some corner of the room. He is just on the edge of his seat. What, what next? And he's excited. And for us, what does it look like that we would be utterly hooked with the story that God has told us in his word? What does it look, for, look like for us to be excited to come to God's word? I know sometimes for us, when that, that shine has dimmed from our moment of clarity and salvation, sometimes it can, can feel like, okay, now I have to read the Bible because that's what Christians are supposed to do. And sometimes the habit of that, the saying, I'm reading the Bible because that's what I'm supposed to, that is a tool used by God to keep us in His Word. We are not all going to live on the mountaintops at all times where we're just excited and hooked for God's Word. So maintain that habit and that tradition of spending time in God's Word, but don't let that be the only reason you do it. Allow that to affect your heart. And when we see Paul praying that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, let us pray that before we come to God's Word. Say, God, let us have the light that we can see what's going on here and be encouraged by it and 
grown in it and equipped by it and exhorted by it and chastised by it. I love that as we come to our time of Scripture reading that something I've noticed is our our brother Dick, before he comes to the reading, just a quick little prayer of, God, use your word here. Apply it to our hearts and to our lives. And recognizing that if Peter could see Jesus Christ do all of the things he did and still deny him, Paul could easily have denied Christ on the road to Damascus if God had not given him the wisdom that was necessary to respond as he did, we can read this book and get absolutely nothing out of it. Or we can read this book, as many have throughout history, and get the absolute wrong thing out of it. But when we have the gift of the Holy Spirit and the working of the Holy Spirit where we can see that He is teaching us through it, we get what God wants to say to His people out of it. We get God speaking to us personally by His Holy Spirit through His Word. So God reveals Himself to us in general creation. God reveals Himself to us in His Word. And then we as ones who have a vital and living and active relationship with God, who know Him by His revelation to us, we can then become conduits of God's revelation to others. We can show God, show who He is, His character to the people we meet. In our youth group, we have been kind of going through 1 Peter. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which we looked at this past Friday, God's people are called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that they may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We go forth proclaiming both in word and deed the truths about God that He has shown us by His word. What an incredible blessing it is that Paul is asking God on behalf of these Ephesian people. He asks that as God has revealed Himself to them resulting in their salvation, that He would continue to reveal Himself by His Spirit leading to their sanctification. God has revealed Himself to them and they have come to know Him. They have been saved. They have been justified. But their sanctification depends on them knowing Him and seeing Him as they go forward in their lives. And if we want to see ourselves grow in our Christian walk, in our faith, if we want to see ourselves grow in righteousness, then we need God to continue to reveal Himself to us because we can't drum up any of our own sanctification. That comes according to the working of God's Holy Spirit. Paul prays that they would know the hope and the inheritance that comes to those who have placed their faith in Him, and that they would see the incredible glory and power of the One who has saved them. All of this could very easily become man-centered. I want to know more about God so I can be. But this is all about the praise of the glory of God. That God has revealed Himself to us that we might come and worship Him rightly. 
that God has revealed himself to us that he might reconcile his people, that he is doing a good work in our hearts. And I would pray that God would be doing a good work in my heart and in your hearts to reveal himself to us, that he would give us the spirit of wisdom, that our hearts would be enlightened by God's word, and that as he does so, that we would grow in our likeness of Christ, that we would grow in our knowledge and our love of him, and we would find ourselves hooked on what God is doing, hooked on what God is revealing, and that that would affect the way that we live and who we are going out from this place. May we know God this way and may it drive us to live to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we ask that we would become a people that would live according to the praise of your glory. And that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would enlighten us, that you would give us the eyes to see what you have done. That you would help us to read your word and know it to be true. And that we would not just assent to these things, that we would not just say, yeah, they're all well and good, but that we would be affected by them and that your Holy Spirit would apply them to our lives. That your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, would be brought to bear upon our hearts and upon our lives and our own actions. That we might live according to your commands. That we might glorify you in what we say and what we do and what we think and how we act. And Lord, we confess that at times we allow our hearts to grow dim. We confess that at times we have neglected the revelation you've given us in your word. And we ask that you would give us hearts that would earnestly desire your truth. And that as we come to your word, that you would help us to see the incredible good news of the gospel that is contained therein. And that we would see and know by your Holy Spirit how you are working in our hearts and in our lives by what we know in your truth. God, you are good. And we thank you for this. We thank you for the time that we've had around the Lord's table this morning. That we can proclaim the death of our Lord Jesus Christ until he comes again. May we proclaim that here with our brothers and sisters. May we proclaim that as we go out. And we thank you that we do not worship alone, but we have a community of brothers and sisters in the faith around the world. May we continue to encourage them. May we continue to pray for them by name. May we continue to pray for their needs as we know of them. That you may continue to work wherever your word is preached. We continue to pray for our brothers and sisters who are not able to join with us in person. And we thank you that we have the opportunity to help them be fed according to your word through our live streams and all of those good things. But we ask that you would bring these people back in person to worship with us, to see and to know your truth and the goodness of gathering together with your people in worship. 
God, we commit this day to you and each one who is here and joining with us online. We ask that you would give us the wisdom that comes from your Holy Spirit. Thank you for these things and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before we go into our time of fellowship out in the foyer, followed by some Sunday school time, let us hear the closing words of Paul from the ends of Ephesians. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. God bless you. You're dismissed.